Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we evolve your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Stephen Hoffman continues our chat about the five technological forces that change everything, focusing on irresistibly intelligent assistants and new species of humans. But first, here's news of hot discoveries. Touching. The 2021 Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology was awarded jointly to David Julius and Ardham Paraputian for the discoveries of receptors of temperature and touch. As is often the case, the discoveries were 24 years ago in 1997, and the winners worked independently on related but different projects. David Julius at the University of California, San Francisco in the US studied how heat sensing works in humans by analysing how the chemical compound capsaicin causes the burning sensation we feel when we come into contact with chilli peppers. Julius and his co-workers created a library of millions of DNA fragments corresponding to genes that are expressed in the sensory neurons that react to pain, heat and touch, in hopes of finding which ones responded to capsaicin. They expressed individual genes from this collection in cultured cells that normally don't react to capsaicin. This found them a single gene required to make the cells sensitive to capsaicin. Further experiments showed that the identified gene encoded a novel ion channel protein, and this ion channel protein not only responded to capsaicin, but also to painfully high heat. They called the protein TRPV1. Independently of one another, both David Julius and Ardham Paraputian used the chemical substance menthol to identify TRPM8, a receptor that was shown to be activated by cold. These discoveries led the way to finding other temperature-sensitive ion channel proteins. Ardham Paraputian, working at Scripps Research in La Jolla, California in the US, found a cell line that gave off a measurable electric signal when individual cells were poked with a micropipette, which is a very, very thin glass tube. His team examined 72 candidate genes encoding possible ion channel receptor proteins and suppressed them one by one until they stopped seeing a response to the cells being poked with a micropipette. This identified the single gene responsible for touch. The gene was named piezo-1, after the Greek word for pressure, piezi. When a second touch receptor protein was later found similar to the first, they named it piezo-2. Experiments showed that piezo-1 and piezo-2 make protein receptors that cause ion channels in nerve cells to be directly activated by pressure on cell membranes. 
They went on to show that the piezo 1 ion channel is essential for the sense of touch, and the piezo 2 ion channel is essential for sensing of body position and motion, known as proprioception. Further work showed that piezo 1 and piezo 2 channels are used to regulate physiological processes including blood pressure, respiration and urinary bladder control. The TRP channels are central for our ability to perceive temperature. The piezo 1 and piezo 2 channels provide the sense of touch and the ability to feel the position and movement of our body parts. Together, these receptors allow our bodies to regulate functions that depend on sensing temperature or mechanical stimuli. This knowledge is being used to develop treatments for a wide range of diseases, including chronic pain. Congratulations to this year's winners of the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology, David Julius and Adam Patapudian. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. What are the major technological forces for change in our lives that we need to talk about? Stephen Hoffman, known as Captain Hoff in Silicon Valley, is the CEO of Founderspace, an international startup incubator and the author of The Five Forces That Change Everything. I spoke to him by Zoom after major technical issues, and I continued by asking him, will we be able to use computers to help us think more clearly, faster, or in ways we otherwise wouldn't be able to? Yes. And this is, you know, all these technologies are coming at once, which is why it's so fascinating. So there's a whole other area where we're making our computers smarter. So artificial intelligence, we could see it today. It makes life easier. Like the more of these AIs can do stuff in the background, the more time we have free. I mean, it's as simple as finding a movie on Netflix. It takes time. But if you can recommend to me the movie I would like, and you're right most of the time, you've just saved me a lot of work like looking for the right movie, finding a restaurant. AI will be doing that for us in the future. We won't have to read Yelp reviews. We can literally just ask, which is the restaurant I would like? And they'll take us to the best one within a certain distance, whatever we specify. So these are coming. The, the, the part where it gets really interesting is let's say I am not happy at my job and I'm thinking of switching jobs. Maybe I'm even happy, but I want to know if there's a better job out there. Well, human beings are very bad. Like we can go and look, you know, what are, we don't, you know, it's very hard for us to know what's all this data, like about what equivalent employees are getting paid at other companies, whether we should stay with our current company and we have room for advancement, or if we took a, a, a sidestep to another company, we'd have a much better career path ahead of us. How do we process this massive amount of data? Well, AI is great at this. Like it is really good at processing data in a way that humans can't. So we could ask the AI, look, are there better jobs out there for me? And then if the AI says yes, you say, oh, well, could you uh, apply and let them know I'm interested? The AI says yes. Now, instead of going through all these job boards and doing resumes, the AI has gathered a lot of information on you by monitoring you at work and your personal AI, and now can go out and talk to another AI, give it that and see if it's the perfect job for you, like where you want to go. This personal AI 
would essentially be helping you make the decision whether to leave the company or not. You would delegate, say, instead of you deciding, you'd say, should I, AI? You, you want to date online. Another example, right now, it's a pain to date online. You're looking at pictures. You never know if the person is the right person or not. And all. But the AI could, if they got the data, if AI has the data, it could do a much better job of matching so in the future, you'll say, find me a right date. You know, I, you, know, you know what I like, just do it. We potentially in the future will be delegating life-changing decisions to AI. So the more powerful AI becomes, the more useful it becomes. We will be seduced into in all these tough decisions we have to make. Should I buy this house? Should I, you know, should I go to this place or this place for vacation? Should I send my kid to a really expensive school or regular school, you know, which would come out better for the kid for the money I have? Instead of making those ourselves, we're going to be relying on AI. The question is, are we diminishing our own free agency? Or is this just a great tool that will help us make much better decisions? I guess one of the issues is if you've got an oracle that's mostly right, you would be foolish not to trust it most of the time, but you'd never know when it's subtly steering you in a direction you originally didn't want to go. Very important point. So we will use these AIs. My belief is that because they're right way more than we are, like the AIs are just as they become more and more sophisticated, are just so much better at making these decisions than us with our limited abilities, because it can literally monitor millions of people out there and see pathways that we just can't see, right? Like, this is what you should be doing. These are your skills. Most of us don't even know ourselves that well. Like the AI would be able to make a statistically much better solution. So yes, we will say, absolutely. I will, I will end up using the AI all the time. Why should I risk it? like and when it has such consequences and without this amazing tool. But these, who owns these AIs? Does Facebook own the AI? Is Facebook subtly manipulating you to buy certain products? Do governments control the AI? Are they like literally guiding you through life from you know cradle to grave by influencing these AIs? Nothing is unbiased. And the AIs themselves may be totally open sourced and maybe you know, free of outside influence, but they're never totally unbiased because just the data they gather is biased. There's biases in society. We've already seen this. We've seen security cameras that tend to identify certain racial groups more than others because they had data that was fed to them that was biased in this direction. So you can imagine walking into a store in the future. They now have, like Israel has made the, this application that can spot people who are potential shoplifters before they even shoplift. Like literally it's minority report. Like before today, we have this, before you steal something, they could identify this person is a shoplifter. Now, if you come in with biased data and it says, you know, you are uh, very likely to be a shoplifter based on criteria that might not might not necessarily be who you are at all, but just statistically relevant, then you could have people in the store treating you as if you are a criminal, even though you're not a criminal. And it gets really scary because right now they have AIs actually deciding whether people should get on parole or not, whether they will uh, commit crimes again, you know, once they're released on parole. So they are consulting today in certain courts, AI to help them make this decision. And so AI is dramatically influencing the judges who make this decision. Is it good? Well, 
it's good in the sense that, you know, it's a tool to keep criminals that could recommit crimes and be violent in prison. But AIs, again, can be biased and wrong. And if you're the exception, do you want an AI keeping you in prison forever? Because it believes, based on flawed data, potentially, or biased data, that you will commit a crime again. These are real issues that need to be discussed and thought through very carefully. Absolutely. I was reading that at various companies, they were using AI to work out who to hire. But because they trained the AI on who they'd previously hired, it was only getting white men of a certain age because that's who they used to hire. And it was deliberately exclude. Well, deliberately, it was automatically and unbeknownst to anyone, excluding anyone that didn't fit the previous criteria. So it never hired women. It never hired anyone that wasn't white and male and between certain age range. So no diversity could ever happen. And they just say, well, we're just following what the software recommends. Right. And this is the danger of living in a society where AI starts to take over all these processes. And I tell you, it's already started. Like, so these issues have to be discussed right now. Like you said, in a company, they're using AI to screen employees. Governments will be using AI for all sorts of social services. Markets are already, AI plays a big role in, in trading on these different markets. You know, there will be a point where humans are sort of bystanders to the world. I mean, we will get to the point in the coming decades where we are literally AIs running the show and we're kind of watching from the sidelines what happens. Is that the world we want? So people have to ask themselves, you know, is that the world we want? In some sense, it can be very good because we haven't done that great a job at managing this planet. Let's face it. So there are two sides to this coin, right? We could talk about the scary stuff of AI, but we can also talk, look at our world right now, climate change, pollution, you know, all the fish stocks dying off, wars still happening, famines when we have an abundance of food, but people are still starving, you, on and on and on human beings have done a pretty awful job at managing this planet. Like we are making it virtually unlivable for us. And there's a huge mass extinction of species on this planet going on right now due to us. Would an AI do a worse job? Well, probably not. It would probably and potentially could do a much better job of preserving the planet, of preserving the, you know, the, the diversity in nature, of making our lives so much better, of stopping conflicts and resolving them, all of these things. AI has the potential to do to make our lives so much better. So there's, you know, none of this stuff is clear cut. Like none of it's clear cut. Like, yes, there are all these dangers. And yes, there's um, as scary as the dangers are, the benefits are equally compelling. So we, our job as human beings is to navigate this path, you know, between the, you know, how can we minimize the dangers the downsides and maximize the upsides of this technology as it inevitably permeates everything we do. And then we've got things in the bioconvergence. One of the issues was things like the biohackers. And, you know, the biohackers are bypassing the whole corporate government structure. So you've got biohackers I've spoken to working on open source insulin so that insulin can be cheap regardless of the consortium that currently controls the price. And a lot of the biohacker groups will let anybody come in off the street and teach them how to do it. So biohacking is amazing. 
Like there are people out there, they're literally experimenting on themselves, a lot of them, because they, they are flouting regulations, you know, government in the US, we have the FDA and things like that. They're saying, screw that, you know, we, we should be able, it's our body, we can do whatever we want to our body. And it's true. Like, at least in the United States, you are allowed to hack your own body, literally take whatever strange drugs you want to take. There's this, this guy in Berkeley uh, who has literally uh, injected himself with something that he experimented on that made frogs grow muscles faster. And he injected this, this gene edited uh, concoction into his own body to see if his muscles grew faster. Now, that was pretty irresponsible because nobody knows what you know this gene edited thing what the long-term effects are and by doing it publicly like he did he set an example that other people should and could do this now he later said that was a bad idea but the thing was he's part of a group that feels very strongly that big corporations are dominating this genetic revolution and that they are monopolizing this technology and jacking up the prices. So gene therapies, for example, Spark Therapeutics, this company out there made this gene therapy to actually cure this genetic blindness that can onset when kids are young and actually they wind up blind. Now, what parent wants a blind kid? Well, so they used a lot of government research and other stuff to develop this, but they patented the final product, right? This gene therapy. So it's only theirs. And then they charged a huge amount of money on the market for it, a huge amount. So you're a parent and you're faced with this situation. Wow. If you have insurance, the insurance company has to pay an obscene amount. If you don't have insurance, and that means all of us have to pay because the insurance company pays, all of us pay. If you don't have insurance, you have to decide, should I sell, you know, mortgage my home, sell my home, sell everything so that my child doesn't go blind? Now, what parent that loves their child wouldn't do that? I go literally into bankruptcy for their child. That's a moral decision right there. Like this company has monopolized it. So these biohackers, a lot of them feel like, well, these companies are monopolizing. It. It's not fair. We should make this, pro these, we should be allowed to use this amazingly powerful technology that allows us to literally edit genes and create new therapies that could potentially cure you know, congenital diseases, cancer, all these different things that, you know, Alzheimer's potentially, but it shouldn't be, we shouldn't allow companies to exploit us to do this. All of us should have access to it, sort of like the open source movement, but for gene editing. And they are doing this themselves and trading ideas. And the, the amazing thing is right now, you can go out and buy a gene editing kit for a few hundred bucks. And you can buy you know, some equipment, maybe for a few thousand bucks that really turns your garage into a lab. And it's at such a low cost, almost anybody can afford it. All you need is the knowledge. And then you can start experimenting with gene hacking. I, there are people who are gene hacking. There are people who are putting chips in their body, all sorts of different chips and, you know, in their hands and their arms. To, they can sense electromagnetic waves. I write about this in the book. They can actually, some people are injecting their eyes so they can see in the dark. Crazy, crazy stuff. Some of it, a lot of it, I wouldn't recommend at all. Like it's very risky, but it's opening up a whole new frontier and they, uh, these biohackers, a lot of them are really passionate about doing this. I've been to the Sydney Biohacker Labs, and uh, some of them are the same people with the implanted chips. Oh, yeah. The, anybody who's going to implant a chip is, you know, they're inclined to do other things, go further and inject themselves. You know, there's a group out there that was trying to create a cure for AIDS and literally with a gene therapy trying to create that. Now, it didn't go so well. 
honestly, the person who ended up getting that injection regretted it. And it was, you know, because it was totally untested. That's the problem. We have these testing and regulations for a reason. Now, the problem is that for an independent person to go through and get approval from a government like the United States, it's super expensive and takes a super long time. So they can legally do it on themselves, but they can't legally do it on other people. However, what they're doing is they're making that technology available and telling other people they can inject themselves, right? So in, and they're sort of getting around the law in a loophole, but that can be very dangerous because there are a lot of people out there. There's some very smart and conscientious biohackers who are really concerned about the long-term implications of this. And there's others that literally either they don't care or they are out to profiteer and or make a name for themselves. And they're willing to put people's lives at risk. And we saw this in China when that genetic engineer literally worked on those babies and edited the genes of the baby, the embryos. So when the babies were born, supposedly they could be resistant to AIDS that the mother has, but we don't really know. And we don't really know what the long-term effects of this, that gene editing he did on those babies or their descendants are. We have no idea. He ended up getting him thrown in jail by the Chinese government. But that was just the taste of what's coming. That was an interesting one because I looked at that one when it all happened. And it turns out there's a little known part of the story that that little gene that they edited, they were copying a natural mutation in some of the Northern European population of CCR5. And not only does it confer resistance to HIV, but it also just happens to be an IQ improvement. So it makes you faster at learning. And so people are wondering, is that really what they were after? And the HIV was just a cover for trying to get smarter Chinese babies. So we don't know. Like that's a conspiracy theory. We have no idea whether it's true or not. But I will tell you, people out there today are thinking about this. So this is where it's going. It's going to we will have designer babies at some point. In fact, we already do. So we can, you know, already, there was a time where in vitro fertilization, which we now accept as just normal, was considered taboo. Like you shouldn't do that, right? You shouldn't pick which egg, you know, you want to fertilize. That is bad. So you can go now and you can literally, you can pay people and they can pick the right egg and you can uh, determine the hair color of your child, you know, the eye color of your child, different attributes of your child just by doing that. But what happens as soon as we can start to edit these embryos, right? Edit the genes in the embryo. What happens? It's already happened, right? We've already done it, like you said. And my question, and I raise this in the book, is let's say one nation, it could be China, could be Russia, could be any other country in the world, United States, who knows? One country says, okay, you can have designer babies because we think it's socially beneficial. First of all, you can cure cancer. You can cure, uh, you know, you can live longer. You can have, you know, be healthier and stronger. You can have a higher IQ and a host of other benefits, like amazing benefits that all of us would love to have for our children and for ourselves. Now, let's say uh, it could be a small country. Let's say Albania allows you to do this, right? Albania says, screw everybody else. We're going to allow anybody who wants to do this operation, you know, this gene editing for embryos to come here and create designer babies. And we're going to tax it. And there's going to be a lot of money flowing into this country from rich people. You have two problems. One, the very rich will be able to afford it and the rest of the population won't. Number two, 
if one country does it and their population starts to become super smart, like let's say Russia makes a super genius, creates like a big program, makes a genius after genius, then they are going to dominate in the end. Honestly, you know, we have seen because we came from chimps, <laughs> chimpanzees and apes, and, you know, we evolved from them and we dominated this planet, right? Our intelligence allowed us to dominate the planet. Nothing else about us, but our intelligence. If one country starts to create super intelligent human beings who also don't suffer all these medical problems, they uh, will end up having a huge advantage. Then every other country will have to do it, right? They will have to do it. So at certain point, as this technology matures and proliferates, which it's doing it very rapidly, that question will be on our doorstep and we will have to decide what to do. So like you said, some people are saying China's already doing it. Who knows, right? That we, we can't buy into every conspiracy theory, but the potential that they could do it and that they could do it today is something we should be talking about because the world needs to make these decisions. Are we going to program our future generations. You know, people ask me, what is it to be human? Like when, you know, we evolved, there are many types of sapiens, we're homo sapiens, but there's all these other sapiens that kind of went away and Neanderthals too. What happens when this next generation of artificially gene edited human beings arise, but maybe they're no longer genetically human. They're not part of the same species. We may start to create not just one other species, but multiple other species. And how will those super creatures, super sapiens, we can call them, or neo-sapiens, how will they treat the older relics, the antiquated versions, like you and me, who were born before this technology? These are questions that humanity is about to stumble upon, and it will fundamentally determine the fate of homo sapiens. Like homo sapiens may be a thing of the past. Like we may look at them as like, oh, that's a homo sapien, you know, you know, a hundred years from now, if we master this technology, we'll be looking at the old versions of humans like we do an iPhone one, you know, that's a human is like an iPhone one. It's interesting curiosity, but we would never use it. That was part two of my chat with Stephen Hoffman, author of The Five Forces That Change Everything, talking about irresistibly intelligent assistance, biased pre-crime, biohackers and new species of humans. Listen next week for part three, where we talk about automating farming and everything else, preserving the earth and self-aware robots. Look for Captain Hoff at founderspace.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania and 2XXFM in Canberra.
Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes where the shows are labelled by keywords, so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.